Hallelujah, Jesus. Thank you, Jesus. You know, if somebody buys you an ice cream cone, they deserve a thank you. Jesus bought more than just an ice cream cone for us. We are bought with a price. He bought, bought us back from the devil. He purchased us. He didn't just create us. I don't really think that God broke a sweat during the creation week. He's God. He just spoke and things just happened. It didn't work that way when it comes to saving us. No, it didn't. First thing he did, he prayed until the sweat came from his brow like great drops of blood. But then he went to the cross. It cost him something for you and I to be here today. You may consider getting up and getting dressed and driving to church a sacrifice, but compare it to what he did so that you could come and be here today. I think we're still learning what sacrifice really is. I want to give thanks to the people that came this morning and prayed. We, uh, we didn't know if anybody would or not. We didn't ask for commitments from anybody Thursday night, but uh, the room was absolutely full of people, standing room only, and uh, you committed to fast today, get up early this morning, and then come to pray. And I'm telling you, God met us in the prayer room. <clears throat> yes, he did. The pastor was a little overwhelmed by it. Asked me what I did to get everybody there. I said, well, I told them that you were going to take them out to Carabas after church. <laughs> so you need to hold him to that because he doesn't know if I really said that or not. <laughs> Thank you, Jesus. No, but we got our reward in prayer this morning. We're so grateful to God for all that he has done. Well, I pray to be seated. I, <clears throat> I don't want to dive too quickly this morning. I have 15 minutes left where I can refer to this as morning, and after that it becomes afternoon. The Lord dealt with me in prayer earlier about uh, the Samaritan woman that went out to the well the sixth hour of the day. She was a woman that uh, was an immoral woman. She was not godly. She did not... Um, present any kind of righteousness in her life at all. She'd been married five times, which by today's standard, that's just getting started. But she was then living with a man outside of marriage. And she went to the well at the sixth hour of the day because nobody would be there then. It was the heat of the day. People would go in the morning to draw water or perhaps in the evening, but nobody went out at 12 o'clock noon as she did so that she wouldn't have to face anybody. And so Jesus, on his way to Galilee, went through Samaria. He says he must needs go through Samaria. He stopped in Sychar, and there was the well that Jacob had dug centuries before, many centuries, and he told his disciples, I want y'all go in town and 
him buy some food, get us something to eat. He could have sent one or two. He sent all 12 of them away for a reason. And he sat down on the well, the Bible says, to rest himself because he was weary from the journey. And along comes this woman. And she met Jesus at the well. And I began to pray that the Lord would meet us this morning at the well. And what impressed me about that the most is I know there's people in this room that you don't feel worthy to approach the presence or the glory of God for whatever reason. Maybe it's legitimate or maybe it's just a, a cognition of your mind. But you don't feel worthy. But see, here's the deal. God will come to the well, and he will meet anybody that's willing to show up. And so he wants to meet you today at the well. In a little while, we're going to open the altar. You'll be able to come and pray and say, why would I want to do that? Because this is where he wants to meet you. He wants to meet you at a place of contrition and brokenness, godly sorrow. God wants to do something in your life. You know, the world's trying to amaze us. I mean, they're good at it. Bright lights and, I mean, they, technology. I mean, does anybody here have a virtual reality thing you put on your head? Anybody here have one of those? I think that would be the coolest thing, but I, I forgot I'm going to buy one because once I get in there, I may not want to come out. The world is so good at just amazing us and triggering a response within us. But that's not what we came here for. We came here today for something that would change our lives. And that's what God wants to do. If you stand with me again, I give you just a moment to rest. I want to turn to Genesis chapter 6. One of the reasons that people... Um, like going to the smorgasbord is because surely there will be something there that you like to eat. Surely something will be there that will look appetizing to you. Personally, smorgasbords are not appetizing to me because I, I, it's open in the air and everything can settle on it. People can touch it, sneeze on it. Here, give me some of those mashed potatoes, right. Besides the fact you got to pay twice for the meal, and I never get my money's worth. But I said that to say this. God has something for everyone in this room. He has something special for every person in this room. <clears throat> Genesis 6, verse 12, And God looked upon the earth, and behold, it was corrupt. For all flesh had corrupted his way upon the earth. And God said unto Noah, The end of all flesh is come before me, for the earth is filled with violence through them. Behold, I will destroy them with the earth. Shake somebody's hand before you're seated. Smile real big, even if you don't mean it. I know what I'm ordering at Carabas. 
couldn't spell it, but I know what it is. Despido de Mari. Woo! Now, I chose these two verses of Scripture for my text, but in all reality, I could have chosen many other verses uh, that are in the Bible, or for that matter, I could have deferred to any number of stories or accounts that are found within the Word of God, uh, because we're going to preach to you something today that I have simply called living between the lines. I don't know uh, why that was so impressive to me, and I could not get away from that. Perhaps it doesn't make any sense to you right now. I think in a few minutes you will have a better understanding of what we're talking about when we refer to living between the lines. Now it is said, I have not countered or verified or validated this information, but it is said that there's 31,102 verses of Scripture in the Bible. Out of those 31,102 verses of Scripture, it took just 42 verses, 42 verses to tell the entire story of Noah. It took him uh, what we believe to be 120, 125 years just to build the ark. And yet, the entire story is told in just 42 verses where God acknowledged his grief over man's sins. Within these 42 verses, he pronounced judgment upon mankind. Noah built the ark. And a global flood destroyed the entire world. Explicit or definitive details are not given us. We do not know about many of the details of countless stories of men and women that lived during that particular time. We read about the, the sons of God and the giants and and, and, and that God was grieved that he had even made man because it appears that it did not turn out the way that he expected it to, although I'm sure God was not surprised at all. So 42 verses of Scripture to tell this entire story. I did research on this one time a number of years ago, and, and it is believed that there was at least, bare minimum, one billion people on the earth at the time of the flood. As many as three billion people were upon the earth during the time of the flood. I mean, you think about it, people lived eight, nine hundred years. We don't know how many of those years that a, a woman could bear children, but certainly probably hundreds of years. So there were many, many people. And if you begin to tell individual stories uh, about their life leading up to and going through this particular event or period of time, this uh, story could have easily filled volumes after volume after volume of books just to tell the story if just Noah's story was told. He had, of course, the Bible says him, Sham, and Japheth. You think he only had three sons? He was 500 years old when he began to build the ark. You think him and his wife went 500 years without having children? I don't think so. There are stories that were to be told, and yet we are given 42 verses, and that is the entirety of it. There are four complete works 
providing us with an account of Christ's birth, his life, and his ministry. And yet it is written in John chapter 21, verse 25, and there are also many other things which Jesus did, the which if they should be written, everyone, I suppose that even the world itself could not contain the books that should be written, amen. Instead of 31,102 verses, our Bible could have been 31,102 volumes. And perhaps even that would not have been adequate to include all of the details and all of the things about God and the things that Jesus did. So what do we do? We're required to read between the lines. That don't mean that we state it as fact, but somewhere God wants us to look between the lines of what is given us and try to understand the things that happened and the things that transpired in people's lives. And thank God he didn't give us all the details because this room could not hold all of the books. We have a hard enough time memorizing, remembering Scripture as it is. I cannot even fathom 31,102 volumes of Scripture. So what we know is that while we are not afforded all of the infinite details, this is where men and women live their lives. They lived in between the lines that you and I read. In between every line of the Bible, perhaps even in between the words, there are stories that have never been told. There are things about people's lives and the things they lived and the things they endured and the things that they went through. is right there between the lines that we could only read between the lines. They lived their lives between the lines of the Word of God that you and I read every day that place that is so obscure that we know there's something there. We know there's information there. We know there's a historical record there, but we cannot see it. It is out of sight of human eyes. This reminded me of a message that I preached years ago, perhaps even more than a decade, maybe even two decades. I, I do not remember, but I know that it was a long time ago. And uh, many of the circumstances and many of the struggles that we uh, endure, many of the situations that we go through in life, they're not our choosing. No one would choose to have financial problems or no one would choose to have uh, a, a disease or an automobile accident that, that uh, gave them a lifelong injury. There are many things that we go through in life that we would not choose uh, to go through if we had a choice. In fact, as we really uh, don't have a lot of control over things. I often think about when I hear about accidents and, and fatal accidents and stuff, that people, they left their house that day. They were fully intending to just go back home later or that evening, and their loved ones never would see them again, and they never made it back home, and they, they never had time to get right with God, and they never had time to pray and, and call upon God. They didn't expect this to happen. And so 
A lot of the things, perhaps most of the things that we go through are out of our control. We don't push the buttons and make things happen. We'd like to change some circumstances and situations in life, but you know as well as I do that I'm telling you the truth, that if you could change it, you would. But some things you just cannot change. But while we are not able to choose or control every circumstance. There's one thing you have control over. One thing that you control. You can control what kind of a man or what kind of a woman is going to go through this thing. You can write in the character. The man's either going to be brave and faithful and courageous or he's going to be a wimp and afraid and he's going to sit in the corner and be depressed and wring his hands and not trust God. You're going to decide what kind of a man is going to face that stuff. You're going to decide what kind of a mother's going to be when the doctor says your child has got an incurable disease. You're either going to fall apart and you're going to lay in the corner and cry or you're going to find a prayer room somewhere. You're going to pray the power of God down in your family. There's something you can control about whatever you're going through. You can control who you are going to be as you pass through this particular storm. I would venture to say that many, if not all of us, have regrets about behavior that we exhibited somewhere in our past. I'm sure that we have regrets about decisions that we have made in our past, or perhaps about how we handled a particular stressful situation in our life. One of the greatest benefits of God's redemptive grace is that many times in life, God gives us a do-over. How many times have I said, if God takes you through a fiery trial and you do not learn what he wants you to learn, you better brace yourself because you're going to get ready to go right back into the fire until you learn what God is trying to teach you, until you hear what God is speaking to you in the fire. So thank God that we have regrets, but he has given us a do-over. This means that whatever you're dealing with or whatever you are going through right now, everybody say now. We're going to get to now later, but I want you to hear now. Whatever you're dealing with right now, you have an opportunity to control the narrative. I've often thought what it would be like to write a spy novel. I have fantasized about writing a novel about a man who was an apostolic pastor of a church, but he used to be a Navy SEAL, and all hell breaks loose in the world, and this apostolic pastor diverts back to his SEAL training and his spy training and leads his congregation. Woo! You get it, don't you? <laughs> Wow, wouldn't that be great? 
when the congregation's going, I don't know what we're going to do. That Navy SEAL says, follow me into the fray. We're going to walk through the fire and come out the other side. You get to ride in whoever the main character is, and you are the main character. I do not necessarily enjoy struggle or stress or problems, but I tell you what I do enjoy. I enjoy looking at my wife and putting my arm around her and say, sweetheart, don't you worry about a thing. We're going to come through this by God's grace. Come on, you get to decide, man. You get to decide, woman, who you're going to be in this present chapter of your life. Say, so what's so great about that? Well, in previous chapters, perhaps you uh, cowered in fear when facing your giant. Thank God he's going to give you Another giant. Last time, I cowered in fear, but not this time. Uh-uh. Times that we failed during extreme testing. Go ahead, devil, remind me of it. But this time, I'm going to trust God. This time, I'm going to keep my faith right. This time, I'm going to keep praying. This time, I'm going to keep going to church. Times we retreated. When others were advancing, but God's going to give us an opportunity to fix that, to make a divine correction in whatever chapter that you're living right now. I'm pretty sure nobody is going to write my biography. I'm not going to write an autobiography because there's nothing automatic about it. But I'm pretty sure... Nobody's going to write my story. But we are living our biography right now. I hope this is not the last chapter of my story. But I don't know for sure, and neither do you. So God is placing in your hand the pen of destiny and you get to decide right here and right now who you are going to be in this chapter. And make a determination when this chapter's done, tidied up, and we start on the next chapter, I will enter the next chapter without any regrets because I'm going to do what God wants me to do. Praise God. Somebody say praise the Lord. So what are we doing? We're living between the lines of our story. You see, there are a lot of things people don't see. They don't see the quiet times that you are overwhelmed. They don't see the nighttime hours. They don't, they, they don't see when you're oppressed and feeling defeated. And they don't see that. You're living that between the lines of your story. We see one thing, but you're living something else. I'm not talking about hypocrisy. But there are places, you're living in obscure places. You wish somebody knew what you're going through, but that's where you're living your life. That's where we all live our lives. One of the reasons that men don't talk a lot about their problems and about that stuff, because 
we don't have as many words as you girls do. And it's hard for us to put into words what we're feeling on the inside or what we're going through. And most of these men will admit every time we tried, after we said it, we felt stupid anyway. Anybody? So you're living your life, your biography right now in places that nobody can see or will ever be able to see. In Hebrews chapter 12 and 2 says, Looking unto Jesus, the author and finisher of our faith, and for the joy that was set before him endured the cross, despising the shame, and is set down at the right hand of the throne of God. Brother Justin, you taught on this last Sunday morning in a slightly different venue, and when you got to going, I thought, oh, my Lord, I'm going to have to change my message, but I realized that I could go in a little bit different direction than you, so thank you for staying on target. And, and Thank you. Thank you. From now on when you're teaching, just look at me. I'll let you know where you're teaching if you're on holy ground or not. So we're exhorted for any number of justifiable and, and valid reasons why we should look unto Jesus mostly because he is the author and the finisher of our faith. Author and finisher. And what this does, it reminds us who got us out of the world and into the kingdom. The author. Pin the first words of the chapter where we were brought out of darkness and into the marvelous light of our Lord. It also reminds us who's going to get us into heaven. I think it was last week, but recently this dude built a rocket ship. Do you hear about that? The rocket ship. Jeez. Went, wah, up, 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 and then it went, He was supposed to parachute out, but his parachute came out prematurely. And he will not be building any more rocket ships. You can't get to heaven without him. I don't care how good you are. You see, everybody banks it on, I feel I feel the presence of God. I have witnessed to Catholics and Lutherans and forgive me, people that, that have never felt what we felt. And they, they talk about feeling the presence of God. But you've never felt him like we're talking about. But even that is not going to get you to heaven. If you've been baptized in the name of Jesus Christ for the remission of your sins, if you haven't, you need to do it today. If you're living a holy and righteous life, not according to your opinion, but according to the word of God, then your past and your future is covered. That's why we're so free to worship like we do. Our past is covered. It's under the blood. You can't undig it. But our future is covered as well. But what I want to know is, what about right now? There's that now. Let me ask you a hypothetical question. I'm sorry, it's the best I could come up with. 
hypothetically, you win a free round-trip ticket anywhere in the world to the destination of your choice, and you are excited. You get to take one person with you, so I guess it's two tickets. But when you look at the ticket, the date of the ticket is 2045. Now, to some of you young, young folks, you can stay excited. But to a lot of us, <laughs> that's not too encouraging. <laughs> Pass it on, because I'm never going to get to use it. So obviously, the ticket wouldn't be any good right now. There's that now. It just keeps coming up. So I'm going to ask you a question. You got the ticket in hand. Would you go to the airport, pack your bags, go to the airport, go to the loading gate and sit there and wait? Would anybody in their right mind do that? You know, when the, when the, the, the people that work there come by five years later and you're still sitting there, guys, your beard is down to here. <laughs> I've got my ticket. I'm not moving. Now you think that's funny, and it would be absurd because nobody in the right mind would do that except that is exactly what we're doing for God. No man knows the day or the hour. We don't even know when we're going to leave this world by death's door. And yet many of God's people just sit around. They're not involved. They're not engaged. They're not doing anything for God. They're just sitting there with their ticket waiting for that date to come. Tell me it's not true. We got our boarding pass from Acts 2.38. Though our departure date is unknown, bless God, we're looking unto Jesus, the author, and he's the finisher of our faith. But the thing about this is there's a whole lot of living in between that God wants us to live. There's a lot of things that must be done between the entrance, our entrance, and our departure. And God has called us to live right there in between those lines. Stephen McGee says we're born and we die. But what defines us is what we do in between. Nancy Levin says honor the space between no longer and not yet. Barbara DeAngelis says, the moment in between what you once were and who you are becoming is where the dance of life really takes place. Let me shock some of you right now. You do not live for God in this sanctuary. You live for God somewhere else. Between the lines of whoever's writing your story, where most of what you're living, nobody will ever see. That is where you're living for God. I think the latter quote is more suitable to the Christian, the moment in between what you once were and who you are becoming is where the dance of life really takes place. 
I'm sure it hasn't been so long ago that you do not remember what kind of a person you were before Christ came into your life. We can ponder the eternal benefits of being saved. My, 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 streets of gold, mansions, no more pain, no more sorrow, no more tears, continual perpetual bliss in the presence of God. We can ponder all of that. But you see, here's the deal. The thing that lies between what you once were and even who you are becoming or perhaps where you're going, that is where the dance of life takes place. I've flown enough to know that people do not dance while waiting for their flight to take off. We missed our connecting flight one time in, uh, was it, where was it, honey, Cincinnati? I think it was Cincinnati. We missed the flight by six minutes. They took us off the plane, rushed us on the runway over to where the other plane was parked, but it wasn't there anymore. That six-minute delay cost us six hours. We were not dancing in the waiting room. Psalms 90, verse 9 and 10, For all our days are passed away in thy wrath. We spend our years as a tale that is told. The days of our years are threescore years and ten. And if by reason of strength they be fourscore years, yet is their strength labor and sorrow, for it is soon cut off, and we fly away. Whether your story is a lengthy novel or perhaps a short story, I hope that you're not just sitting around waiting for someone to read your benediction. I hope you're not just sitting around waiting for somebody to read uh, uh, the final words they will say over you the day that you are laid in the ground. I hope that you are living the best life that you can live between the lines because that is where God has placed us. I know that you will agree that there's nothing like the presence of God. Brother Locke was uh, talking about that earlier. And when, when you come into the church, uh, I mean, there is nothing. You could search the world uh, over a hundred times. You will never find anything that is like the presence of God. Psalm 1611 says, Thou wilt show me the path of life, which is what we're talking about. But then he says, in thy presence is fullness of joy. I'm sorry, it's not at Disney World. It's not at Universal. It's not at Six Flags over America. Joy comes from the presence of God. Why? It doesn't cost you $106 to get in the door. There's not people walking around in Mickey Mouse costumes who are, you know what I mean. At thy right hand, there are pleasures forevermore. Some people can't figure out why we live this, why we do this, why we're in this. Here's the reason. I wasn't three years old when I got baptized and got the Holy Ghost. I was 24 years old. You think I hadn't lived in sin until that day? You better believe I did. I wouldn't go back to that for anything because in the presence of God is fullness of joy. 
Psalm 68 and 8, the earth shook and the heavens also dropped at the presence of God. Even Sinai itself was moved at the presence of God, the God of Israel. Psalms 97 and 5, the hills melted like wax. Wasn't because the sun was hot. It was at the presence of the Lord, at the presence of the Lord of the whole earth. And so once you were baptized and received the Holy Ghost, there's absolutely nothing more satisfying, more fulfilling, more sublime, more gratifying than experiencing God's presence. And so without question, we long for, we desire it. I think I could even use the word crave. We crave it. We seek after the presence of God. Acts 3.19, repent ye therefore and be converted that your sins may be blotted out. And if that was all that happened, that would be great, right? When the times of refreshing shall come from the presence of the Lord. So contemporary to God's will for his redeemed are times of refreshing. Now, I'm, I'm going to give a little caveat here because sometimes when you're going through hell, it's hard to feel the presence of God. It seems like when you need it the most. Job went through that. At time when he needed to feel God's presence the most, he couldn't find him. He said, I looked on my right and I looked on my left. I looked before me and I managed to twist around and look behind me. I, he, I could not find him anywhere. But he said, I know he's here. And that's what I want to talk to you about as you live between the lines. So I'm going to tell you that I love feeling the presence of God on a good day. I mean, when the sun is shining, it's a six-mile-an-hour breeze, it's 74 degrees, it's low humidity, nobody's sick, everything is good. I love to feel the presence of God on a good day. But on the days when hell has overcast my skies, and hell is determined to wreak havoc in my life. I'm going to tell you, that day is when I need the presence of God more than any other day. And it will mean more to you as well. So the psalmist said in 143, I stretch forth my hands unto thee. My soul thirsteth after thee as a thirsty land. Now, if you did not know before the service, you do now that our worship is rather animated, it's rather loud. It didn't really get crazy in here today, but sometimes it gets pretty crazy. But we worship God with passion, and we worship God with fervor for a number of reasons. First of all, because God is worthy of it. You know when a dignitary walks in the room, He's more than a dignitary church. He is the God of our salvation. So we worship him because he's worthy, but not only that, we worship him because of what he has done for us. We worship because we know with certainty that when we do, 
that he will manifest his presence and his power wherever we are gathered together, wherever, whenever. So there is a rhyme to our reason. We're not just, we haven't just lost it. We know we're worshiping with purpose. You see, you need to understand something. God might be in this place, but is he right where you are? Worship brings him to where you are. So when there are people going nuts, if you want to know why they're going nuts, worship God, then you can go nuts with them. When the power and presence of God moves on you, but I want you to hear me. As much as we desire and need to feel the presence of God, God just wants to be present with us. Now, I'm speaking of two different things. Feeling his presence is one thing, but God just being present with us is something else. Some people only attend certain functions that will augment or bring or magnify the presence of God in their lives. But feeling God's presence and him being present are two different things. 2 Corinthians 3.18, but we all with open face beholding as in a glass the glory of the Lord are changed into the same image from glory to glory, even as by the Spirit of the Lord. And there's a bunch of stuff that's jumping out to me in this verse of Scripture that we do not have time here today to discuss. But we cherish every opportunity, every chance we get to experience the glory of Almighty God. Once we experience the glory of God, the presence of God, the, the supreme presence of God, we immediately, according to this, begin our ascent to the next opportunity where we will be able to experience the glory of God again or to where his glory will be manifested. Now, here's the thing. We don't live in the glory. We live between the glory. You can't live in this. If we stayed and lived in this, who'd cut the grass? Who'd teach a Bible study? Who would go and work a job and earn money so, so the church could operate? We don't live in the glory. So to some people, they don't understand that. And so if they're not feeling the glory, they think, well, where did God go? God didn't go anywhere. It's up to you to move from where you are in this glory to reach the next glory. And to live in the gap, to live in that obscure area between one glory and the next. Because anybody can live for God in the glory. I mean to tell you, anybody can live for God in the midst of God's glory. And so we live in that stretch. That stretch sometimes can be strenuous. It can be challenging. It can be rough. It can be rough terrain. It's just so many things can, can occur in our lives and in that stretch of road that is between one glory and the next. And that's where we live So I just don't understand people that do not press when in a worship sitting or a prayer sitting press to get into the glory of God because come on now, if you miss this opportunity, 
it's going to be a while before you get to go through that pathway and reach another place where the glory of God is being manifested. David wrote about it in Psalms 23, the entire psalm, The Lord is my shepherd, I shall not want. He maketh me to lie down in green pastures. He leadeth me beside the still waters. He restoreth my soul. He leadeth me in the paths of righteousness for his namesake. Then he writes, Yea, though I walk through the valley of the shadow of death, I didn't choose the valley, but I'm going to go through it, so I will fear no evil. I'm going to choose what kind of a man I'm going to be when I go through this valley. And how can I be that man? For thou art with me, thy rod and thy staff, they, brother, comfort me. Thou preparest a table before me in the presence of mine enemies. Thou anointest my head with oil, my cup runneth over. Surely, without question, goodness and mercy shall follow me all the days of my life. And I will dwell in the house of the Lord forever. Now, if we trace the steps of David's journey, David said that the Lord, which is his shepherd, made him to lie down in green pastures. Why did he make him? Because David wasn't the kind of guy to lie around. He made him rest. No, you're going to lay here for a while. He led him beside still waters where his soul was restored from his weariness and stress of previous struggles or from previous battles. David acknowledges that his shepherd led him on this path meant to make it possible for him to continue his journey. Because from there, God led him in the paths of righteousness. For his namesake, the paths of righteousness, there are no pools of still water. There are no green pastures on that path. It's not the same as where you just came from. It's the path of righteousness. And there will be challenges and tests along the way. When we jump to the end of the psalm, God prepared a table for David in the presence of his enemies. He sat there and ate while his enemies had to watch him. They could not touch him. They could not harm him. And God gave him a fresh and powerful anointing to the degree that he said his cup virtually ran over. If David walked in this room in an apostolic worship service, he would be right at home because he was perfectly familiar with the cup running over. Without of your belly is flowing rivers of living water. What an experience. Finally, God assigns a special envoy 
consisting of goodness and mercy that is to follow David for the rest of his life. Man, I want God to be my shepherd. I want him to lead my life. But there is an in-between to David's story. And this time, this time, it's not relegated to obscurity. You see, between David's green pastures and his specially prepared table, there was a very dangerous and a very scary valley. I think God needs to tap us on the shoulder, some of us, and remind us somewhere in a prayer room somewhere and a worship service somewhere where we said, God, make me into the vessel you want me to be. We forgot about that, and he is doing that. And we wonder why we're going through hell and why we're going through the stuff we're going through because somewhere those words flow out of your lips and God says, I'm not going to forget what you just asked me to do. Use me, God. Oh, you better put on your seatbelt. Between the still waters of restoration and his divinely assigned envoy, there was a place called the Valley of the Shadow of Death. Since David's restoration was extraordinary, Since his anointing was exceptional and because he was assigned two providential escorts, his valley in between would have to be extraordinary as well. You want an anointing? Do you want a powerful anointing? Come on, do you really want a powerful anointing? I'm going to tell you, your valley will equal the strength, the power of your anointing. Oh, we all just... Pour it on me, man. I'm going to have to go through it. Just get out of the bottle and lay it on me, dude. That's what a lot of young preachers think. That's the way it works. So David's psalm was not an optimistic forecast of future events. What was it then? It was a chronicle of what he had experienced, of where he had been and what he had gone through, and, of course, also where he was going. He discovered that between restoration and anointing, hear me now, somewhere between restoration and anointing, there was always a valley. Sometimes that valley is very dangerous. I'm going to tell you right now, I'm not going to lie to you. Everybody will not survive the valley. It's up to you. It's up to you. You have to take that pen of God's grace and write in the woman you're going to be as you go through the valley. And you've got to write in the man you're going to be. You're either going to whimper and cry or say, I will fear no evil because I know my God is with me. I may not be able to feel his presence here like I did by the still waters, but I know he's still with me. And yes, it is a difficult concept to grasp. I have struggled uh, as well with that, but I finally learned 
that even when I cannot feel him, no, especially when I cannot feel him, when I cannot find him anywhere, God is always present with me. I went through a thing in Illinois many years ago. I, the devil convinced me that God didn't love me. And I was determined I was going to find out the truth, so I started praying. It didn't take God five hours to get to me. It took me five hours to get to God. But I'm going to tell you something. I've never doubted his love for me since. I've learned that even when I can't, especially when I can't feel him, God is with me. So I ask you, are you ready to live what is in between the lines? Ready or not, that's where you're living. Apostolics must go quickly to a close. We're prolific believers in one God. I mean, that is a hill we are willing to die on. Put a, a gun to our head and, and, and threaten us with death if we don't denounce the oneness of God or embrace the Trinity. I'm going to go ahead and pull the trigger. Go ahead and shoot. That is a hill we are willing to die on. There is one God, and we're not going to accept anything other than that. While the Apostle John was exiled on the Isle of Patmos, while he was living between the lines, how much do we know about what he experienced on the island? Not much, because we have to read between the lines. While he was on the Isle of Patmos, uh, uh, he had a divine visitor. He was living an, orde an ordeal that most of us cannot even imagine, the conditions he was living under. And... Uh, uh, you think that it's nobody knows what you're going through. I mean, John on the island, you can't make a phone call. You can't send a text. You can't email anybody. Everybody's probably wondering where you are, what happened to you. Nobody knows because back then the mode of communication didn't exist like it does today. So he is alone. You think that you're alone on your island. You think wherever you are, you're all by yourself. I did that one time. I was hurt. I was broken. I went to prayer and said, God, if I just had somebody to pray with me, I could get through this. And God spoke to me and said, I'm here. Did it change the direction of my life? You better believe it did. The devil wants you to think nobody knows where I am or what I'm going through. That's right, they don't. You're living between the lines, but God knows. So John had a visitor. In Revelation chapter 1, the visitor said to him, I am Alpha and Omega, the beginning and the ending, saith the Lord, which is and which was and which is to come, and if there's any question about who I am, the Almighty. But then John writes, I, John, who also am your brother and companion in tribulation and in the kingdom and patience of Jesus Christ, who's in the isle that is called Patmos for the word of God and for the testimony of Jesus Christ, I was in the spirit on the Lord's day and heard behind me a great voice as of a trumpet saying, I am Alpha and Omega. It was loud. It was boisterous. Everybody else around him could hear it. He said at first and the last and he talked to him about writing some things and sent it to the seven churches of Asia Minor. As far as we know, John was without any form of godly human fellowship or companionship 
Nevertheless, we do not find him moping around on the first day of the week when he would normally be in church somewhere. We find him praying, and not only that, he is praying in the Holy Ghost. He is praying in the Spirit. There's no choir. There are no angels singing. There's no worship leader. There's no band playing. And how could he do that? Because Jesus was there with him. So he is, our Lord is the Alpha and the Omega, first and the last, the beginning and the ending. You know, there's, well, let me ask you, who knows how many letters in the Greek alphabet? You see, all we know is that there's two. Alpha, the first letter, proves my point. And omega, the last letter. There's 22 other letters between alpha and omega. And yet we know alpha and omega, but can you write in Greek? Can you speak in Greek? We know first and last, Alpha and Omega, beginning and ending, author and finisher. But if you don't know who is in between, may God help us. There's going to be a lot of things happen between this service and next Sunday service, even between this and Thursday night church. But if you just figure Sunday church, there's going to be a lot of stuff happen. If you only come to Sunday church, you know, church to church, church service to church service, glory to glory. I don't know if you know it or not, but God is mentioned in the first verse of the Bible. Do you know that? In the beginning, God. So I got curious. I didn't know. I had to go look. I looked at the last verse of the Bible. Guess what? Revelation 22, 21. The grace of our Lord Jesus Christ be with you all. Amen. God is mentioned in the first verse. He is mentioned in the last verse. But guess what? There's a whole lot of Bible between the first verse and the last verse, and that's where God wants us to live, between the lines. David said in Psalms 37, 25, I've seen, for I've been young and now am old. I can, I've never been able to really identify that verse, well, I could for a, a little while now, but I mean, there's a time I, I could read that, and I could identify with the young part, but not the old part. Now I can identify with the old part. I don't even remember the young part. <laughs> we had a humanity guy come the other day and said, how's your hearing? I said, what? So I've been young and now am old, yet have I not seen the righteous forsaken nor a seed begging bread. In other words, he said, I've lived at both ends of the spectrum. I've lived in between my youth and my old age. And I've seen some things, but I've never seen the righteous forsaken or his seed begging bread. So if you can see that Jesus Christ is the author of your faith, if you acknowledge that he is the finisher, he's not, if he is not everything in between, that you have missed the point. Musicians, would you join me on the platform?
if he's not everything in between. The psalmist said in 118.24, this is the day that the Lord hath made. We will rejoice and be glad in it. We uh, recently went on YouTube and watched a message that Mike, no, it was, that was Mike Williams, wasn't it? Mike Williams preached. We've been listening to so many lately, these tracks. Back, I think, in 2006 or something, because of the times, and this is what he preached on. This is the day that the Lord hath made. Tremendous message. Uh, but for those of you who say in your heart, someday I'm going to get serious about living a faithful and committed and godly life for Jesus Christ, I want you to know that today is the day. Today is the day. That's, that's God's will. That's God's opinion. Today is the day. So I'd like to change one of the quotes that we quoted earlier, the one by Stephen McGee, said we're born and we die, but what defines us is what we do in between. I would like to change it to this. We are saved and we die. I don't think he'll mind. But what defines us is what we do in between. Perhaps the Apostle Paul said it best in 2 Corinthians 6 and 2, for he saith, if I have heard thee in a time, accept it. And in the day of salvation have I succored thee. Behold, now is the accepted time. Behold, now is the day of salvation. How many in this church building has heard that verse quoted before? We have heard it quoted many times before. But I want to read it to you from the Amplified Bible. For he says, at the acceptable time, or in parentheses, the time of grace, I listen to you. And I helped you on the day of salvation. Behold, now is the acceptable time. Behold, now is the day of salvation. In other words, I listen to you now. You listen to me. I heard you when you cried out to me then. Now you hear me. Well, I am reaching out to you now. Whereas you say that the day that you came to God was a day to remember or perhaps a day that you have memorialized in your life. God says, no, now is the acceptable time. Now, it don't matter if it was 10 days ago, 10 years ago, or 50 years ago. He says what counts is right now. And this verse of Scripture is one of the two most misquoted verses of Scripture in our Bible. Everybody quotes it, today is the day of salvation. That's not what it says. It says, now is the day of salvation. Why not just use the word today? What is the big deal today? Now is the day. The Greek word for day is himera. And it refers to the time when one sunrise or sunset to another, equal to a day and a night, a full 24-hour day, or only a part of that day. You say, this is the day that I'm going to get right with God. If you said that right now, you have 11 hours and 15 minutes to put it off. 
you have still 11 hours to recant your commitment or to change your mind or to not follow through or to procrastinate and say, well, I'll just wait and do it tomorrow. That's why it's not proper to say today is the day because today gives you more time. But right now, So behold, now, stand with me, is the accepted time. Now is the accepted time. Behold, now. See, you thought back when you were baptized and got the Holy Ghost was the day of salvation, didn't you? Didn't you? Come on, admit it. That was the day of, no. God is saying, that's what you think and that's what you say. But now. Right now is the day of salvation. Now is used as a direct antithesis to something done in the past or to something proposed in the future, not my words. Not my words. Now is the antithesis to something done in the past. See, we think, what I did in the past is going to secure what's going to happen to me in the future. And God says, no, you're missing the boat. You're living, you're living between the author and finisher, but you're not living between the lines. The young tend to live in their future. It's true. You, you live in your future. What you're going to do when you're going to have kids, how many you're going to have. where you're going to live, what your career is going to be, where you're going to go and vacate. You live in your future. The old, everybody that's old say amen. We live in our past. We live in yesterday. We tell stories of yesterday. Doesn't that seem disconcerting to you? When? Are we going to live in the present? I think if the young and the old came together on the now, there'd be a divine collision. There would be. But something good would come out of it. So before we open this altar, Romans 13.11 says, And that knowing the time that now, it is high time to wake out of sleep, for now is our salvation nearer than when we believed. At any given time, we are only a few hours away from our yesterday. And at any given time, we're only a few hours from our tomorrow. But that very small, confined space in between is what God calls now. Now. Right now. This moment. I hear a lot of people tell us about what they used to do. Well, I used to do this in church, I used to do that in church. I don't care about what you used to do. What are you doing now. Well, as soon as the kids are grown, we'll get more committed to God. 
Yeah, uh-huh. You know, if you don't pay tithes on $10, you won't pay tithes on $1,000. If you don't pay tithes on $1,000, you wouldn't pay tithes on a million dollars. It's a principle. You either live it or you don't. Right now is the time that's accepted by God for you to come to this altar and pour your heart out to God and say, God, I'm going to write the next chapter of my life and I'm going to write in a woman of faith. I'm going to write in a man of faith, a woman of God, a man of God. Is anybody ready to come and do that? So you walk out of this place a different man and a different woman than who walked in. It's available to you. Come to this altar. Come on to this altar. You may have the weight of the world on your shoulders. That's okay. You may not know what tomorrow's going to bring. That's okay. Because all that counts is right now. Is your now. Your now. You're living between the first and the last. But I say to you, live it well. I say to you, live it well. Live it in faith. Live it with a commitment to the God that brought you out of sin and planted you in the kingdom of God. Right now. Yesterday I was depressed, but right now, God, I'm going I'm to talk to you. Yesterday I was defeated, but right now. I'm going to lift my voice and I'm going to pour out my heart to you right now. I don't know what today's going to bring. It might be better. It might be worse. It might be just like it is today. But right now, I'm going to worship you. I'm going to talk to you. I'm going to give you praise. I'm going to commit myself to you. Regardless of what the next chapter or the one after that writes about my life, I'm going to live in the now for God. I just want to be with you. Samaritan woman, you don't feel like you're worthy to go down to that altar or to drop to the well, but you are. He is here for you. That's what he came here for.